Hello, folks. Pull up a chair and join us on this adventure we call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. Welcome to another edition of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Today, we touch on a subject that really doesn't come up very often, but when it does, it almost always comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and making a quick decision on this particular matter can be difficult if you're doing it on the fly, Tane. So we thought that it might be good to give the folks just a little guidance and a little place to go for a future reference. That's right. Our topic today is invocation of the Fifth Amendment in civil cases. That's right. Just a little refresher. The old Fifth Amendment. Let me read it for you. Yeah, what is that, Wade? No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in the time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. This is the important part. That's right. Nor shall be compelled in any criminal case, criminal case, to be a witness against himself, nor deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Reading law during a podcast is not awesome. But in this case, Wade, you did an awesome job of it. So, of course, folks, the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution is applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment. So so now we've gotten the applicability of the Fifth Amendment. But as you noted, Wade, that is in a criminal context. Yeah, so that all applies to criminal cases. I mean... How does that even apply to somebody's rights in a civil context? That's a great question, Wade. There's a long line of Georgia cases that states, essentially, that a person may not be compelled to answer questions in a civil case that might tend to incriminate that person in a criminal context. And and that really makes sense if you think about it. I mean, what good would it do if you had the right against self-incrimination in the criminal context, but it could be circumvented by the filing of a civil action? True. Civil forfeitures, TPOs, private lawsuits. I mean, all that could be exceptions that would allow it to swallow the rule. That's right. So how does this apply in a a civil context, Tane? Yeah. So it really applies across the board, Wade. I mean, it, it, it... Again, it wouldn't make sense if you didn't apply it in discoveries, things like depositions and interrogatory responses and requests for admissions and those things. And then, of course, it also applies during trial testimony in the civil context. So I don't think I ever told you this, but I once tried a divorce case. Mm -hmm. My client was accused of having several affairs. Mm Mm-hmm. And he um, elected that his best path forward would be to plead the fifth. Okay. Sure. It didn't turn out awesome. No, no, it wouldn't. But, um, well, but that it's interesting that you raised that way. And this is again, kind of an aside here, but up until recent history, probably the last 15 years or so, infidelity, adultery was actually a criminal offense. Hence my recommendation to my client that he not go down the path of where they had relations and <laughs> how often and all that stuff. Ah, uh, the things they just want to tell. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, let's look at some of the cases. Let's actually sure. get to real case law, not not old guys waxing eloquently about sure. the past. So let's talk about the Parham versus Stewart case and all the sites are in the outline. We don't need to read those. Yeah. So Parham is a, is a relatively new case, a 2020 case. And in Parham, the appellate claimed error because the trial court refused to compel the appellee to answer interrogatories and deposition questions to which the appellee claimed the Fifth, fifth Amendment privilege and the, and the appellant objected. So the Georgia Supreme Court pointed out that it was well, sell, well settled that when a witness asserts his privilege against self-incrimination in a civil case, he must respond to each question asked, asserting the privilege to those questions as he deems necessary. That's right. If a motion to compel is made, the trial court must determine whether the privilege has been validly raised to each question. That's right. So in other words, the privilege when invoked is analyzed on a question-by-question basis, and the person responding must assert the right as to each and every question. In other words, you can't just come in and say, I'm asserting my right to, under the Fifth Amendment. I'm not answering any questions. The actual questions have to be asked, and the defendant has to answer those questions, uh, answer them by responding, by asserting his or her Fifth Amendment. We've we've seen that in practice, I think, in some criminal and, and uh, other proceedings in the past, haven't we, Wade? Some recently. I, 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 I seem to know my Fifth Amendment rights better than really anybody. I uh, really assert them uh, probably perfectly. I think I perfectly assert them all the time. So in other words, wow, let me get off of that in a hurry. In other words, the privilege is analyzed on a question-by-question basis, and the person responding must assert that right to each question, as you said. Tane, I have seen people, I think, misunderstand this. And you tell me if I'm wrong, because you did this a lot more than I did in practice. Sure. Some people would assert their Fifth Amendment privilege to their name, for example, because they said that once you waive it, you've waived it everywhere. That is absolutely incorrect. And that's why this case points out very specifically, it is a question-by-question basis. Does And the court has to make the analysis. Does that question have a criminal implication. In other words, answering your name, unless the crime is that you're assuming a a false identity or something like that, um, really doesn't have a criminal implication. And so it is only when you get down to the questions that that are the nitty gritty of the crime, I don't know, you know, the elements of the crime or something that would directly implicate uh, criminal activity, it's only then. And And then the court can determine whether or not to compel each answer so because all the questions got asked. That's exactly okay. right. So uh, the Parham Court, citing another cage, case, which was Page versus Page, um, said this, to sustain the privilege, it need only be evident from the implications of the question in the setting in which it is asked that a responsive answer to the question or an explanation of why it cannot be answered might be dangerous because injurious disclosure could result. The trial judge, in appraising the claim, must be governed as much by his personal perception of the peculiarities of the case as by the facts actually in evidence. And while that's hard to read, reading law during a podcast is not awesome. What it means is the judge is analyzing whether under the specific and special facts of that case, Answering that particular question would have a potential uh, detrimental effect to the defendant in a criminal context. 
Now, in a criminal context, I know there is ample law tain that says if you know the defendant or the witness is going to assert the Fifth Amendment privilege, don't do that in front of the jury. That's correct. That doesn't. Does that apply here? It, I honestly don't know. It, it really does. So, so let me let me make one point, and then we'll talk about that because okay. I think that's an important point. On so, so, what happens is, let's say first of all, let's talk about discovery first. So, let's say um, I ask some questions in a deposition, and the and the witness asserts their Fifth Amendment rights in the deposition, and particularly where that person is a party, and that, that's where it most often arises. That needs to be brought to the judge's attention, So right? That's right. So what the person in the deposition must do, the asker of the questions, the, pro, the propounder of the questions, must still go through each and every one of the questions that he or she wishes to ask, have the defendant or the witness assert their right. It's not the defendant. It could be any party or, or any witness. Have that witness assert their Fifth Amendment right to each and every question. And then, just like you would in any other context where a, a witness refuses to answer a deposition question, you have to go and file a motion to compel with the court to get the court to require the witness to answer. Now, that's a discovery issue. Same with interrogatories. Same with requests for admissions. If they assert the Fifth Amendment right to those, each question has has to be taken to the trial court. And again, the trial court does the analysis we talked about a minute ago, which is, okay, does that question have a criminal implication? If it does not, then the court would compel a response of the witness to those questions. So mechanism-wise, just mm -hmm. pure procedure. We had a deposition. You This witness asserted the, the privilege. You would then, as the litigator, file the, the, other, the propounder of the question. Mm-hmm. File a motion to compel. That's how it gets to the judge's attention. That There's is, not a special Fifth Amendment motion or something. You have to do a motion to compel. That is correct. The other party reasserts that, yes, we correct this, my client correctly, or, or at least from their perception, asserted their Fifth Amendment privilege. Mm -hmm. Now the judge has to sort of go question by question, as you said. It, That's it, right. It's in the context of a motion to compel. That is exactly right. And, and, the, and the argument in that motion to compel hearing, if there is a hearing, I mean, you don't have to have a hearing mm -hmm. on that, but, but if there is a hearing, uh, the argument would be, Judge, here's why this doesn't have any criminal implications. From, that's from the propounder of the question. The witness's attorney would say, Judge, here's why this specific question has a potential criminal implication for this witness. Okay? And so then the judge would make a ruling one way or the other. How now, much does that happen in, in chambers when it's, hey, Judge, my client was having an affair with his wife and... Blah, blah. How much of that do you have to get out so that the judge understands the context? Can you do that in camera? Have you ever done that? I, I, I have had them talk about that in camera. It is kind of the same situation you often have when you're having one of those maybe telephone conferences about a potential motion to compel one of the parties that, that may at that point may put the brakes on and say, judge, I think we need to have this on the record and have a hearing. And in that case, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily continue to have that conversation on the phone. So, but what if I, as the lawyer, need to put in context what my client, why this might actually implicate my client because it's not obvious on its face? Then I think that if it's not obvious on its face, then I think you perhaps have to give enough explanation to let the trial court know why it's problematic and then. For example, you may have to ask that the record be sealed, or you may have to ask that you know you be allowed to argue without any sort of uh, 
admission in judicio, but but you know you can talk in hypotheticals, judge. That would potentially implicate you know a hypothetically crim- if yeah. this and this, then that would right. That's exactly okay. that's exactly right. And the second thing I want to say about that too is once the judge, let's say this was a deposition and the deposition questions was were you know answered by asserting the fifth, the trial judge then also has to determine how those questions would get responded to if if an answer is compelled. In other words, do you does the lawyer get to make a written response to the question or do you go back to deposition and ask all of those questions over again? And then get to do the follow-ups that might naturally flow from that. Exactly. And that's why in those cases where it's come up, it hasn't come up very many times, but in those cases where it's come up, I've said, okay, go back to the deposition and answer those, you know, 10 questions and whatever follow-ups you have with respect to those questions. And then you also get to decide who gets to pay for them for that next deposition under uh, 9-11-37. So uh, you asked a minute ago, Wade, what would we do if this had to do with testimony during trial? Whether we would we would talk about that in front of the jury or if not. If it was the first time it came up, exactly, example, you didn't take the deposition. Yeah, and, and and it and it quite frankly, it often that is where it pops up. You know, a witness gets called and something happens, and and they assert their Fifth Amendment. And I would say in that context, put a hard stop right then and there. Somebody asserts their Fifth Amendment. I would say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, can you can can we excuse you for a second because. You as a trial judge potentially need to explore some of those reasons the person is asserting their Fifth Amendment rights. And you, I, I would advise you need to do that outside the presence of the jury. Now, you may come back in and just recreate that same, that same hearing you just had outside their presence in front of the jury. But I think a dry run and some rulings on whether those questions need to be responded to is appropriate to do on the record and outside the presence of the jury. So essentially, you're going to have a little mini hearing about that person's testimony right then and there. Now, Tane, you, you read the Parm case and you said that there's a footnote. I don't remember which number. There's a footnote in there. It's pretty helpful. That's right. Yeah. Um, the, the court essentially analyzes what happens when a witness invokes their uh, rights a, under the Fifth Amendment. And I think this is basically what, the, what it says. In, in civil cases, every time a witness invokes uh, his or her Fifth Amendment right, a trial court may draw an adverse inference against the witness's testimony as the inference is, quote, based upon an implied admission that the truthful answer would tend to prove that the witness had committed the act. So think about the context here. We're in a civil trial. In the midst of a civil trial, the witness invokes the Fifth Amendment rights. Okay, what is the finder of fact supposed to do with that? You know, how, mm-hmm. how do you then how do you then interpret that? So the answer is that the finder of fact um, may draw an adverse inter- uh, I'm sorry an adverse inference against that witness's testimony. In other words, you can sort of assume that the conduct that's alleged to have been done, which would then be criminal, has in fact been. A- accomplished. Has but in Parham, it says, while that's may, it's a permissive, you, you are not required to make such an inference. And it does not state that the adverse inferences is, is irrefutable. So in other words, you might have some other, you can, you are not barred from dealing with that. If you, if you assert the fifth amendment, that's exactly right. And one of the reasons that Parham is an important case is it had never been clear whether that adverse inference was mandatory or not. And so the Parham Court in this footnote clarifies, look, while you can draw that inference, while the finder of fact may draw that inference, 
it is not required to do so. That's that's I think that's big. Yeah. And the second part of that that the court also clarified is even if there is an inference drawn, that inference can be rebutted. It's not irrefutable. In other words, it's not a done deal at that point once the Fifth Amendment is asserted that you A, draw an adverse inference, and even if you do, that it can't be rebutted. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So, Tane, that kind of brings up two separate and interesting points. Um, one, how does this affect the use of evidence in pretrial and, I guess, post-trial motions? And right. then two, how do we instruct a jury when it happens in a civil case? Man, those are great questions. I'm glad you came up with Read them, them just the way I wrote them. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the Parham case, the, the appellant insisted that the appellant's invocation of his, uh, I'm sorry, the appellee's invocation of his Fifth Amendment right, coupled with other evidence, required the trial court to grant summary judgment to the appellant and that it was, appeal, uh, that it was um, error to have failed to do so. But the Supreme Court pointed out, to the extent that the appellant is arguing that the trial court was required to draw an adverse inference that could not be rebutted by other evidence, this is just simply incorrect. And that's going to be important for the jury charge piece. That's right. Well, and it's also important when you're considering things like a motion for summary judgment because the court might draw the adverse inference. If it does, it, it would need to say that it's drawing the adverse inference. And then the court would need to say, hey, this other evidence doesn't, isn't sufficient under, under my judgment to, to uh, rebut it, and therefore I'm granting summary judgment. I mean, I think all of those would be important in a circumstance where the court is using that adverse inference to grant a pretrial motion. So if it happens at trial and you get some, because there's not a whole lot of case law on this, somebody's going to have to sort of manufacture a charge. It's not going to be a part of a pattern, right. I don't think. Um, what are your thoughts there? Sure. So I think in the context of a civil trial, after having the little mini trial that we talked about a few minutes ago. Outside um, the presence. That's right. Outside the presence of the jury. um, It would be prudent to make an immediate instruction to the jury about this potential inference. And and I'm suggesting that that instruction would be something kind of like a limiting instruction, the same way that you do that when evidence comes in that you use for a limited purpose. Right. This would kind of be the same the same way. And, and you would do it right when that evidence, right when the Fifth Amendment is invoked for the first time. Right. I would suggest, and this is all you know, sort of tame kill on the law here, so take it for whatever it is, but I would suggest that inst- instruction include a few things, Wade. And and, and, and I've given you a, a few can uh, I, of can those. I, can I weigh in on some of those? Yeah, weigh thoughts? in on some of those, Wade. This is the taint, taint on the law? That's right, taint on the law. 
an, an affirmation that it, it is the witness's right to invoke his or her right against self-incrimination. That's right. I mean, that's that's one of the constitutional ones. You know, it's right up there in the in the top ten. So uh, yeah, that the witness in properly invoking that right is not required to answer the question. That's right. That the jury may, again, may draw an adverse inference against the witness against that witness's testimony, and the inference is based upon an implied admission that a truthful answer would tend to prove that the witness had committed the act or crime. Yeah, and and that language comes directly from Parham, and I use it, you know, for that reason. I feel like it's safe language because it comes straight from the Supreme Court's language in Parham. That the inference may be drawn, but it's not required. Mm-hmm. And then finally, that the inference is rebuttable. Yeah. And I think I think those five requirements are all things that that are talked about by the Supreme Court as essentially the results of an invocation of the Fifth Amendment in a civil context. I think they they correctly state, um, you know, what the law is and how the finder of fact can use that invocation of the Fifth Amendment. Right. And I think they they explain that the jury doesn't have to consider it as an adverse inference, but can do so. And if so, how they would do that. And Tane, you know, we've talked about uh, limiting instructions in other contexts and criminal cases, particularly, we've talked about the fact that once you give a limiting instruction, put that in the packet of information that you're going to include in the final. Would you do that here? I I definitely would. I think I would give that instruction again in the final instructions to the jury at the end of the trial. Um, To the extent you can, you know, and I, I always you know, suggest this if you have time under the circumstances. I would write down the instruction that you're going. I mean, when you when you finish your little mini hearing, I would tell the lawyers, I'm going to give the jury an instruction uh, once this Fifth Amendment right is invoked. Here's the language of that instruction. I'd jot it down and then I'd use that same language and I'd get the attorneys to weigh in on it. And then I'd use that same language um, at the conclusion of the trial. You know, it's weird the fact that we don't discuss some details and how similar we are and how we do things. I would have done the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, we are of one mind. It's way. weird. It's scary. Yeah. It's scary up here. So the other thing I, that I would point out is that instruction needs to be given when at the conclusion of the evidentiary hearing, you have decided that the witness need not answer the question. <laughs> By contrast, the other option is to say, no, no, you have to answer that question. That's right. And then they've got choices to make whether they want to be in contempt or answer the question because they've now the testimonial privileges sort of been evaporated. Yeah. So for example, a witness might be called to testify about possible incriminating acts and might refuse to state his or her name. You know, as we talked about a few minutes ago, that's, that's not incriminating. And so obviously that question, uh, would be the questioner would be required to ask the court to compel the answer. And then again, you'd, you'd go through the analysis that we talked about a few minutes ago during this little mini hearing. And then, and then if you decide that the witness is required to answer, I think what you are required to do for the witness's benefit at that point, again, outside the presence of the jury, um, is to explain the potential for contempt penalties and direct the witness to answer. And then if the witness refuses, the court has the option of holding the witness in contempt if they refuse to answer the question. So, Tane, a lot of these times this comes up randomly, a witness shows up or is on the schedule for tomorrow morning and a lawyer shows up that you had that you thought maybe wanted you to get the, you to sign something or to try to sneak in in the middle of it. And they said, no, no, I represent Mr. Jones and Mr. Jones is the next witness to be called. And that might be your clue, Judge. So 
So let's say when this has most often happened for me, where odd lawyer shows up uh, without my knowledge, they're generally representing a paramour, <laughs> a boyfriend or girlfriend um, who's being called to testify at trial about stuff that might or might not be criminal, but it might be compromising in some way. I have had it in a mommy daddy kind of thing where, mm -hmm. where mama or daddy is called as a witness and they really don't want to tell the judge or the jury what, what junior did. Right. So Wade, <clears throat> let's, let's just give some suggestions. What if the witness shows up with their own lawyer at trial? So I'm going to suggest that the jury be excused. Yeah, I think that's maybe always a good even, idea. Maybe we do it early in the morning before we even get cranking. Mm -hmm. If we know. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, sometimes yeah. it just... But when the guy, when the lawyer, I said guy, I don't know why I had to have one specific lawyer in mind because it happened in one specific case. <laughs> Me too. If the, if the lawyer shows up and you say, hey, do you need something before we start this trial? I mean, that's fairly common. Sure, right. And they go, judge, no, nah, I'm representing the next witness. Mm -hmm. Oop, oop, time out. That's right. You're representing them in what way? And do you need to be heard? Now we've got a mini hearing outside the presence of the jury. And, and I'll say this. I don't know that you have to hear from them at all, especially if the no, it's just a clue. Exactly. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is, but but I think best practice is and especially, hey, they're a lawyer in your jurisdiction. You know, common courtesy says they might have something important to say. Let's see what they have to say. Yeah, They so, thought enough of you to put on put on their clothes and come down there today. A coat and tie. Yeah. So. So anyway, um, I'd excuse the jury and say, OK, tell me what this is all about. And then, you know, they and, may and say you would go through the relevant questions and say, OK, what is it that you're trying to assert the fifth? I mean, you try to get you try to pare it down, but try to get the questions on the record. Sure. And the assertion. Right? And, and again, I would let the I would let the witnesses attorney participate during this mini hearing. Yes. I don't know that I would let them say a word once the jury comes back. Nope. In. Yeah. I, they, they can tell their client, I think you should answer that question. I think you should not answer that question. Under I'll let him amendment. hand him a note, but yeah. I, the, the witness, I mean, I would let the lawyer hand the witness a note. Sure. But I don't, I'm not going to, they're not going to be on the transcript in front of the jury. That's right. So, uh, again, <laughs> so what if this comes up expect unexpectedly during trial? This is this is what this podcast is best for, you know, <laughs> so that you know the red flags and the things to anticipate and what to do. So, Wade, what do you do if it comes up during trial? Stop, drop, and roll. That's exactly right, because things are on fire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, seriously, but but do stop and and don't get in a hurry and don't think that everybody else in the world knows the answer except you. And and, and let me say one other thing. So. So when this most frequently comes up to me, when I've had it happen more frequently is, and this doesn't necessarily have to do with civil cases, but sometimes it does. Somebody comes in to testify about something to try to be helpful, either in a criminal case or a civil case. And you see where it's going and you realize said witness is about to admit under oath felony crimes. Okay. Yeah. What have you done in that context, Wade? I'm just curious, because I've had it three or four times probably that, in 15 that years. That a witness, a non-party has taken the stand, is about to admit crimes. Yes, is just about to say, they ain't got no lawyer there, and they are about to go down that road of saying, oh yeah, I was the one who set fire to this woman's house, not the defendant. <laughs> Or, or I helped him. Or I, I made a false statement when I made the previous statement to law enforcement. Which, yeah, which is more frequently the kind of thing that the witness will come in. Golly, I'm so afraid to put on the record in case everybody else does this differently. But I would probably say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry. I'm going to need y'all to step out for just a minute. 
and I would have a conversation with somebody with a Miranda card or something to try to clue this person in. Are you sure you want to go down that path? Yeah. So, so what I have done in those circumstances, very similar to what you just said, I have done my very best Ooh. Off the top of my, I know, shocking, right? I have no, done my very best off, off, the, know. off the top of my head um, to, to tell them what their Fifth Amendment rights are, to tell them that what they're discussing could potentially be construed to be the admission of committing a felony crime. I have actually gone as far in a criminal case, I, I don't remember ever doing it in a civil, although I may have, as just stopping and calling the circuit defender's office and saying, I need a warm body lawyer over here, ASAP, to explain somebody's rights to them under the Fifth Amendment because they're about to go down the road. Now, I don't think you're required to do that. No. I think if somebody comes in there and they're dumb enough to come in <laughs> to trial and, and are about to admit you know, that they committed felony crimes under oath. Um, sometimes it gets past you. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes they answer a question being wordy or whatever, and they you didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. And and again, as I think with all of those things that may need to be thought out more carefully, I think the better you know the better thing to do is stop, excuse the jury, and if nothing else, take a little break for yourself to think. Okay, how are we gonna how are we gonna go forward in this? Because context? it's so rare that it happens, but it's so important. It is huge. Yeah, I mean, you could you could literally have that. So so anyway, I, I brought that up because I think it's really important for you, again for you to think about before it happens. What will I do? All right. So let's recap. You ready? Yes. Witnesses have the right to invoke Fifth Amendment even in civil matters. That's right. The judge must rule on each individual question slash answer. That's right. As to whether it has implications of criminal activity. The judge must instruct witnesses to answer if there are no Fifth Amendment implications. Correct. The jury should be instructed on how to handle this. That's right. Negative inference can be drawn, not mandatory, but can be drawn. And then the negative inference, if drawn, is refutable or rebuttable. That's right. So... You may need to decide if you, the judge, or an attorney needs to advise the witness of his or her rights against self-incrimination. That's something to keep in the back of your head for those kinds of uh, situations. And you know, hopefully they won't arise, but if they do, at least you'll say, oh man, I remember there was a podcast on this. And then you'll say, hey, y'all, I need 25 minutes to go listen to <laughs> episode <laughs> 121 or whatever it is of the new Good Judgment podcast. Folks, I hope this edition of the Good Judgment podcast has always as always, been helpful and beneficial. With that, I'm Wade Padgett. I'm Wade Padgett. Tain, you going to say anything? Under my rights guaranteed to me under the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, I choose not to answer that question on the grounds that it may tend to incriminate me. Oh, my God. Have a great day, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be a, have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, 
nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website, goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.